Diving into our conversation, though, today, this is our final week in Storyteller. And if this is your first week, like, what's Storyteller? What we've been doing is this year we've been focused on the book of Luke. So we've spent a lot of time in that. And so in this series, we, we decided to take the book of Luke and we just went through parables. We've, we've gone through 10 different parables now. And a parable, right, is just an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And so the way we've explained that is Jesus is trying to teach us how to live the life of someone who's of the kingdom. He's trying to teach us about the kingdom of God, trying to figure that out and help us get it. And when we don't get that, or like the disciples, they didn't experience it the way that Jesus had, obviously, we don't get to experience. So he's teaching us about something that we don't get to experience the way Jesus understood it. So he's taking elements of the world, whether it's agriculture, it's relationships, it's the economy, business, whatever it might be. And he says, this is how I want you to understand it. So he's putting it in our terms so that we can understand the disciples' terms so they can understand and helping them get to the point where they understand what Jesus is teaching them. And in doing that, he has taken the time to tell somewhere between 30 to 50 stories, we think, in the gospel. So we don't have necessarily all of them, or some people would qualify parables as as different things, and some people would qualify them otherwise. But that's a lot of stories. And Jesus was one of the best storytellers that ever existed. And so when the gospel writers were thinking about the stories that they wanted us to remember, they wanted the other disciples to remember, the other followers of Jesus to remember, these are the stories that came through. And we didn't get to do all the parables in Luke but we did a good amount of them. And so we, we wanted to focus on these stories and say, what is Jesus teaching us? And why were these stories so important that those who wrote the Gospels wanted to keep them for us? And so we've walked through that, and this is the last one we'll get. And I want to, before we dive into this one, because this one's going to be a little bit different. It's going to be a little different because we're going to dig in a little more theologically than maybe we have other weeks. Okay, so I won't worry about that. So if you're not awake, go get a cup of coffee. You might need an extra one today. And we're going to move around in Scripture a little bit more. There's been certain weeks where we've been like, boom, here's the story. We're going to talk about that. We're going to bounce around a little bit. So, like always, we'll have the verses on the screen for you. You can go to the follow along if you want and follow along there, and all of it will be there for you, which is really easy. But if, you're, if you've got a physical Bible and you like to flip around, I'm going to make you work a little bit today. Okay? So just giving you a warning uh, on that. So here's where we're going. I want to start with this question. What makes a great story? Now, I ask this question, very broad question, I know, but here's why I ask this. When, when we're thinking about how we consume stories, we have many different ways to do that. We can go to a library and pick up a book, and we can read a story that way. You can go home this afternoon, and you can go to your TV, and you can pick your favorite streaming service, and you can watch a story that way, and you can even decide how many episodes of a story you want to watch. You could go home if you still have this. Sometimes we use it in our house. And you can pick up a DVD or a Blu-ray and you can put that in and you can watch story. Or you could go to the movies and you could bring in a story, right? There are many different ways for us to get stories. And so we do that a lot, right? Entertainment is a massive business. And so we do all of those things probably weekly, somewhere around there. When they were telling these stories, right, they, they were just standing around and they would talk. And, and, and sometimes they would be able to write down stories like the gospel authors did, and they would be able to do that. But rarely was that the case, and even some people weren't able to read. And so when they were telling stories, they just got to sit down and they got to talk it through. And so they would tell these stories to be able to connect meaning like Jesus did with these parables. They would tell these stories to continue their history. That was the way they handed down history was telling the stories of 
of their ancestors. And so they would lock in and, and listen to one another. And we do the same thing with media. We would want to know what a good story is or, or with books and whatever. And so we process this idea, what makes a great story? And we may have different opinions on that. You may say if there's a great love interest, it's a great story. You might say if there's great action, it's a great story. But we all think about and evaluate as we're consuming different stories, do I like this or not? And in fact, I think there have, we maybe have all been in, the, in a space where we've started to watch something and we've been like, this is not great. Like, I'm not entertained by this. It's not, maybe you watch one episode of a series someone told you about, you're like, I just don't get it, right? I, I don't like it. And so we evaluate this all the time and, and we try and think about what makes this good? What, what makes me want to watch this or what's going to make me go to the next episode. And, and I would say this, and I think you would probably agree, that great stories move you to action. They elicit a response from you. Now, this can be a very wide range of things. Sometimes we watch movies and we just want to be entertained and we just want to sit down and forget about work for a while, forget about the stress for a while, and you're just going to put a movie on, you're going to scroll on your phone and whatever. And you're like, this is a great movie because I can just watch it in the background and it's awesome and it just allows me to disconnect with what I need to disconnect with for a while. Some movies, though, you're going to watch because you want to learn something. So you might watch something about history, or you might watch something that's uh, biographical, and you want to learn. Or you might watch something that you want to be moved by. You actually want to understand how someone felt. And so there's, if it's a great story, if it draws you in enough, like there's an action that you take, or there's, there's a response that happens. And on a very low level, the, good, the response that it could cause you to take is just, you want to see the next one. You saw the first in the series, and so you want to see the next one. So if it was a good story, when you know the next one's coming out on the streaming service, you know the next one's coming to theaters, you might say, I want to buy that ticket, or I want to continue to pay for that streaming service because I want it. And so great stories move you in some way. The worst stories make you just go, like, just leave it alone and never talk about it again. The best stories and great stories move you to action. Here's what I don't want us to miss as we wrap up this conversation is that all of these stories that Jesus told were to get us to move somehow. There was something he wanted us to know. And, and all the time when he wanted us to know something, there's an action that is connected to that. So I would say also, before we dive into this, like if you missed any of the weeks, go back and catch up. You can go back on YouTube and watch them. You can go wherever you get your podcasts and listen to them. But they were there and Jesus told them because he wanted us to move. He wanted us to take action. He wanted us to do something with what we were being taught, and I don't want us to miss that. So where we're going to go today to start is Luke chapter 20. So in Luke 20, we're going to pick up the story in verse 9, and we're getting to the end of Luke. Okay, so we've been following through these chronologically. We're getting to the end. Jesus is almost to where he's going to be crucified. He's getting very close to that moment. And he does this thing that he does a lot. And I think even just the first sentence of Luke 20, verse 9, it just says this, right? Now, Jesus turned to people again and told them this story. And I wonder if at that moment there were people's reactions. How many of them were like, ah, oh, man, Jesus is going to tell a story again. But how many were like, oh, yeah, Jesus is going to tell a story. Let's listen. Let's find out what he wants to teach. And so he turns to them and gets ready to tell the story. It says this, a man planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers, and moved to another country to live for several years. Now, this isn't something that necessarily happens a lot in our culture, but it happened a lot back then. 
Somebody owned land. This was a big deal. They owned land that was able to be farmed. And so they would own that land and they would move away or they would go on a trip or whatever. And so obviously travel takes a lot longer. So if it's a long trip, they're going to be gone for maybe years at a time. And they would make a contract with farmers that were going to use that land while they were gone. And so what would happen is it it wasn't necessarily like rent. We're used to if you're going to rent a store space in a strip mall or something like that, you're going to pay monthly. It wasn't really like that. It was more of a percentage. So they would establish a percentage and whatever the farm did for that amount of time or whatever the farmers made, the owner of the land would get a portion of that income. So eventually what's going to happen is someone's going to come in and they're going to say it's time to pay up. And that's what happens in the next verse. So verse, or sorry, chapter 20, verse 10 says, at the time of the grape harvest, he sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers attacked the servant, beat him up and sent him away back empty handed. So you can see why this would be difficult to enforce. And we kind of talked about this before in one of the other stories where you don't have a paper trail right? So you don't have really receipts at this time. These farmers are just kind of saying, this is what we made or this is what we didn't make. And and when the guy who owns the land sends one person to come and collect, if there's multiple farmers, you could see how in this circumstance with the owner far off and not there, if there's multiple farmers and only one guy coming to collect, the farmers could look at him and say, well, there's six of you and one of us. How do you think this is going to go? And so this is difficult. So the guy shows up and he says it's time to pay up and they say no. They attack him, they beat him up, and they send him back empty-handed. Verses 11 and 12. So it says the owner sent another servant. But they also insulted him, beat him up, and sent him away empty-handed. A third man was sent and they wounded him and chased him away. So this happens three times. The the owner sends their, his representative, it's time to pay up. Nope, we're not paying up. We're going to take care of you ourselves. Get out of here. Go back to your guy. We're not giving you anything. And I want to pause here and just kind of give you some some context of, of what we believe Jesus is talking about. Obviously, if you've been here for some of the stories, you're probably connecting the pieces that the owner of the land is God. He owns the land. He owns the space. There are those that get to use the space and, and be a part of it and get to um, leverage it. And so we get to do that and we use that space and we, we use what's God's in our own lives. And so when he says, hey, it's time to give me what I'm due, right? If that's, that's the case. There's someone who come, he comes along. And, and in history for, for the Israelites, these would have been the prophets, The prophets would have come and they would have said, this is what God is calling you to. This is what God wants you to know. This is how you're living differently than you're supposed to. And we know numerous times the Israelites would look at that prophet and say, nope, we don't want to listen to you. We don't believe you. And in fact, some of them, like Jeremiah, they did abuse and even kill. And so as they're hearing this, those who are, um, especially the religious leaders, they're starting to put two and two together and understand what Jesus is saying here. And then the next verse comes in verse 13. It says, what will I do? The owner asked himself. I know I will send my cherished son. Surely they will respect him. Verse 14 and 15. But when the tenant farmers saw his son, they said to each other, here comes the heir to this estate. Let's kill him and get the estate ourselves. So they dragged him out of the vineyard and murdered him. What do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do to them? Jesus asked. So you can see historically, if you know some of the Old Testament, it talks about the guys coming and looking, like prophets come, 
people refuse him. Now Jesus says, guess what? The sun's going to come. And on our side of history, we go, we know exactly where this is going. We know the sun. Jesus is the sun. So God sends his son rather than just the prophets to have this conversation. And it's interesting the way that the farmers react. It says, they, they said to each other, here comes the heir to this estate. Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. This is an interesting premise. Because if the son is the heir to the estate... It doesn't really make sense that just because you kill or get rid of the son that you get to inherit the estate. That's not really the way that legally works. But what they think is, well, if we just get rid of him and we kill the son, maybe the guy will just never come back. Maybe the owner of the land, it'll just fall to us and we can own it and we can do what we want with it for as long as we want. And we won't ever have to worry about this again. And and I would say that this idea is very interesting when we think about the way we process and understand who Jesus is and what our reaction is to him. And I I think this is sometimes the, the case, that there's an assumption that if we get rid of Jesus, we get rid of our problems. Now, here's what I mean by that. Sometimes people will look at Christianity, they'll look at the idea of Jesus, they'll look at the idea of God, And they don't like that idea. They don't like that someone would be in charge of them. They don't like that someone gets to tell them how to live their lives. They don't like, if we're honest, we don't like that sometimes, right? When we look at scripture and we go, this is what scripture is calling me to do. And we go, I don't really like that. Like, that's not really what I want to do. That's not how I want to process it. I would rather do this. I would rather give in over here. I would rather not worry about that sin. And so the idea is, well, if I can remove this piece from my mind, if there is no authority over my life in this way, then it's not wrong. It's kind of like when you're speeding along and you think there's not a cop, but then you see one. As long as there's no one to see you, it's kind of like if the tree falls in the forest, is anyone if I speed and no cop sees me, did I really speed? That's kind of the idea. The answer is yes. It's just if there's no one to enforce the rule, then it doesn't matter, theoretically. But the reality is the rule is still there. And so sometimes people have this response, and I think it's the same response that the farmers have. If we can get rid of Jesus, if we can get rid of the Son, if we can remove this authority from our lives, we get to own the land. And in our terms, or in human terms, and today it would be if we can just not have God as a, as a regulation on our lives, if he's just not real to us, then we can live our lives the way that we want to live them. And so in some ways, people would just say, I just don't want Jesus or I don't want God because I don't want that regulation on my life. If I could just get rid of him, if I just don't believe he exists, then I don't have to worry about it. But Jesus will go on and he'll, he'll address this in a minute. Remember, he asked the question at the end of uh, verse 15. He said, what do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do? So what do you think the owner will do when he finds out that they killed his son? And in verse 16, he answers that question. He says, I tell you, He will come and kill those farmers and lease the vineyard to others. There's a response from the people listening. They say, how terrible that such a thing would ever happen, his listeners protested. Now, here's another thing I want to point out. Remember, Jesus is getting closer to the cross, and we actually think that this is the last parable he ever told. Do you notice, like, if you've been here over the few weeks, like, the stakes of the parables are getting bigger and bigger and bigger? The first parable we talked about was the parable of the sower. 
So he starts just talking about like we're, we're throwing seed out and it's about the what seed is going to take root and what soil. And you're like, okay, there's definitely um, gravity to that and importance to understand that and what we're going to do with it. But this is that Jesus multiple times now in the parables, as he's getting closer to the cross, there are people being killed for their decisions. That's a lot different than thinking about where seed is going to fall on the ground. And so Jesus is getting more and more gravity to his conversations, and there's more and more tension to it. And he keeps going back to this idea. And so people are even saying, what a terrible thing that the king would come back and he would kill the people that have killed his son. And Jesus references this verse in, in, in verse 17. It says, Jesus looked at them and said, then what does this scripture mean? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. That idea is where we're going to land today. I want to like, we're going to flesh that idea out. That's the theological idea we're going to talk about. So that stone, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And then Jesus says this in verse 18, everyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone it falls on. Verse 19, the teachers of the religious law and the leading priests wanted to arrest Jesus immediately because they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers, but they were afraid of the people's reaction. So they get it. They understand he's telling the story about them, and they're the problem. That makes them very unhappy, and they would like to get rid of Jesus immediately. However, there's a lot of people listening there's a lot of people around, and so they fear that if they just do this at the moment, this isn't going to work out. So they start to make their plan otherwise. And we know the way that that plan worked out, right? They do end up taking their plan. They end up being the ones who kill the son, which, by the way, that I'm sure I would have been blind in that moment as well. But when the guy who can do the miracles and has all the following starts telling stories about, and he's claiming to be the son of God, starts telling stories about people that kill the son of the person who's the landowner, and then you're the ones who kill that person. Like you'd think in the story, understanding where they fall in the story would impact their next steps. But they still don't like it. They still don't like Jesus. And so they decide they're going to kill him. But that idea of the stone, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone is a massive piece. And this idea actually shows up multiple times in scripture. And where it comes from is Isaiah 28. So we're going to go back to Isaiah 28. So you can jump back there to the Old Testament if you'd like. And we're going to start in verse 14. It says this, Therefore, listen to this message from the Lord, you scoffing rulers of Jerusalem. Verse 15. You boast we have struck a bargain to cheat death and have made a deal to dodge the grave. The coming destruction can never touch us, for we have built a strong refuge made of lies and deception. Okay, give you a little bit of history of what's going on here. Why are they having this conversation? The kingdom of Judah was worried about the Assyrians coming and attacking them. Now, largely, this was one of the biggest issues they could have at the time. If you were like, what's the number one fear of people at this point in history? It would be another nation coming in and attacking them that would be larger because they're going to kill people, they're going to pillage, they're going to take children and wives, and they're going to, it's just all a mess. And this would be the number one thing they don't want to be, to happen. So they get information that the Assyrians could come and attack them. So what they do is they go and they make a deal with Egypt to be their backup. So now they're the allies that the, that the kingdom of Judah is going to rely on should the Assyrians come in. And they feel like this is a great plan. 
We've, we've got our backup. We've got someone to be the bully so that we can make sure that they don't come and attack us. This is a good idea. However, if you know the scriptures, God never ever tells them to go make an alliance with another nation to be their backup because he's the one who's in control. Yet they think they've struck a bargain. So it says to cheat death. They think they've saved themselves from dying and to dodge the grave. And they think that the coming destruction will never touch them. But in verse 16, it says this, Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I'm placing a foundation stone in Jerusalem, a firm and tested stone. It is a precious cornerstone that is safe to build on. Whoever believes need never be shaken. Verse 17, I will test you with the measuring line of justice and the plumb line of righteousness since your refuge is made of lies, a hailstorm will knock it down. Since it is made of deception, a flood will sweep it away. This reminds me so much of the, like, build your house upon the sand, build your house upon the rock. Same idea coming through in this conversation. Verse 18, I will cancel the bargain you made to cheat death, and I will overturn your deal to dodge the grave. When the terrible enemy sweeps through, you will be trampled into the ground. And then in verses 19 and 20, it says, and again and again, that flood will come morning after morning, day and night, until you are carried away. This message will bring terror to your people. The bed you have made is too short to lie on, and the blankets are too narrow to cover you. Okay, so let's pause again and just kind of understand. We're talking about this idea of a cornerstone, right? Now, when we think of uh, this idea, it might be helpful for us to think of a keystone called the Keystone State. That stone in the middle is, is important, that without that stone, the rest of it falls down. The same thing is true of a cornerstone. Um, when we were, and, and cornerstones are very important. You want the corner of a building to be very supported because you, it holds up two sides if there's four sides, and you want to make sure that that's a strong spot. Um, and I remember when we were looking to move here, and we looked at some different houses in New Holland and stuff, there was one house that we were going to look at, and we weren't really sure what we thought about it um, because, and this was kind of a red flag to us, the family who had moved in, it was a new build, and nine months later, they moved out. New build, nine months later, family moves out. That's, that's automatically, you're kind of like, well, why? That doesn't feel necessarily like the best thing. We found out there was a sinkhole on the property. So we find that out, and we kind of go, all right, well, let's just, I was like, let's just go see where on the property is. Because if it's like really far over there, like maybe, I don't know. So we're like, let's just go see it. We'll just see how it is, whatever, right? So we get there and I think, no lie, it was five to 10 feet from the corner of the house. That's all we really needed to see, right? We see that and we say, this is not the right house for us. We don't want to mess with that because we know it's close to the house. That could become problematic and we don't want it right there. We don't want it at the corner, We know this, right? It makes sense. The corners, we want to be strong. The keystone, we want to be strong. And God says, you don't need to go and seek alliances with other countries because you have me. And then he says, I'm going to establish this cornerstone for you so that when the difficult times come and you think there's a problem, like that cornerstone is going to hold you. And then in verse 20, I love the uh, picture he gives here. He goes, the bed you have made is too short to lie on. The blankets are too narrow to cover you. Now, full honesty, I don't know that I've ever really experienced a bed that I was too short to lie. Thanks, Mark. I remember you were the first one to laugh at that. I was, I've never really experienced that. I've had to sleep on some couches that were maybe a little short, but I don't know if I've ever slept on a bed. But Mark, have you ever slept on a bed that was too short for you? Okay. How did that feel? 
Yeah, right. It's not fun, right? Your feet, I'm assuming your feet are hanging off the edge. Like, this is not the best experience. I have had to try and sleep with a blanket that was too small or too narrow or just wasn't sufficient. And if you're trying to sleep and you've got a bed that's too short or you've got a blanket that's not enough or you're too cold or whatever, it's the worst. And you're trying to sleep and you can't. You think you're going to be comfortable going into that night and like, I can't sleep. And you're just stuck there all night and it's just uncomfortable. And Isaiah uses this picture to say, you think you've made the bed for yourself that's going to make you comfortable and you're wrong. And in fact, you're going to go through this experience and think that it's going to be great. It's exactly what you needed. And it's going to be actually really uncomfortable for you. And he uses this analogy to say whatever we come up with, whatever the comfort is we figure out, we're not going to be able to protect. And this is how I said it. Any comfort someone can create is a comfort no one can protect. Anything that is man-made that's a comfort, you cannot completely protect. You can't. You might be able to build the house you love, and you think you're going to be comfortable there forever. Things happen. Hurricanes come. Floods come. If you live in certain areas, right, tornadoes come. Like, you can't hold on to it. You think you've built the perfect career, and then the economy changes, and then what? We think we've got bank accounts that are just going to sit there and be perfect, and then something happens, and that changes, and there's something else that comes up in life. And when we think about the comforts we've created, there are also things No one can protect. And so when he's saying this to the Israelites, he's saying what you're thinking about, what you think you can create, the comfort you think you can produce for yourself is nothing compared to the comfort that God can offer you if you would just rest in him and not try and find comfort in other things. And even in, in Romans, Paul goes to this idea. In Romans 9 verse 30, it says, what does this, all this mean? Even though the Gentiles were not trying to follow God's standards, they were made right with God. And it was by faith this took place. Verses 31, 32. But the people of Israel who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law never succeeded. Why not? Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law instead of trusting him. They stumbled over the great rock in their path. Again, another reference to this cornerstone. So now we've got Isaiah brings it up first as a message from God. Jesus talks about it. Now Paul talks about it. And he says, this is, this is the way we get this. The idea, this is how I'll say it and I'll explain it, right? The idea that we can be good enough to earn our way to heaven is not a new concept. And in fact, there were those that Paul's talking about that think, if I just keep the law well enough, I'm going to earn my way into heaven. We go back to the idea of the farmers who, when they see the sun coming, they get rid of them. They go, if we, just, if we remove the standard by which we have to live, or we remove the person who thinks they can come asking for the funds, if we get rid of him, we can just do whatever we want. And so this is still a common thought, right? People in Israel thought it because they were trying to keep the law. People today, if you just have a conversation with somebody, the overwhelming majority of people, if they're not followers of Jesus, will say, How do you think, if you think there's an afterlife, and about 70 to 75 people in the world, percent of people, sorry, 70, 75% of people in the world would say, there's an afterlife. You ask them, if you get to heaven, how do you think you're getting there? And the overwhelming majority would be, if I do what I'm supposed to do, if I'm good enough, if I'm better than that person over there, right? If I don't go into that kind of sin, this is how I think I'm going to get in. 
This is not a new concept. And, and Paul says it right here. We think we can get in by being good. But how does he respond? He says, they will stumble over the great rock in their path. Then he goes on in verse 33. He says as God warned them of this in the scriptures when he said, I am placing a stone in Jerusalem that makes people stumble, a rock that makes them fall, but anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. And then he goes on in, in chapter 10. And I just want to go here because this helps us understand. So like if it's not just being good, what is it? Romans 10, 9, 10 says, If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. Okay, so, so what do we do with all this? How, how do we get it? I want to try and help us put a bow on this idea and understand this idea of the cornerstone. What does that mean as Jesus is the cornerstone? What does that tangibly mean? And how do we get this to be the case? And I will just start here because I think this is where Jesus starts the story, okay? Jesus is uncomfortable. The farmers wanted to be comfortable in what they wanted to do without the regulation of the owner coming to declare what he needed. They wanted to just own the land themselves. They wanted to be able to exist in a world where there wasn't someone that was going to come knocking on the door and say, this is what I require of you. And in some senses, we all feel that way sometimes. Right? We, we would love to make our own rules. We would love to say uh, when we show up to work and when we don't show up to work. We would love to say when we can go on vacation, when we can't go on vacation. We would love to say how fast we can drive and how fast we can't drive, right? All of those things. We, there are times we just go, I wish I had the ability to just say, I will make the rules. And when Jesus comes along, guess what? There's an uncomfortability there. Because we have to submit ourselves to a different way of life that our natural inclination doesn't lend itself to. So there's times where Jesus is going to come along and say, this is what I require. And we would rather just say, Jesus, please leave me alone. I don't want to do that right now. It's uncomfortable. It's going to move us to a place where we don't want to do it or we don't want to respond that way. And it makes us uncomfortable because of the friction. But here's what I believe these passages are telling us, and I'll explain it a little more. Here's what I would say. Some people will trip over Jesus in their pursuit of God. He says some people will trip over the rock, and some people will be crushed by the weight of his authority. He also says that some people will be crushed. Now, here's what this means, okay? Sometimes scripture uses the, um, the analogy of a race, right? And so, if we're all running, we're trying to run a race, you're trying to get from point A to point B in life. We would all agree with that. We're born, there's certain achievements we want to make, and we're trying to get to maybe point B by the time we die, or we have different places along the way we want to go. And so we're, we're trying to pursue this. Everyone is, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. You're just trying to get through life, and there are certain pit stops you'd like to make along the way. So let's just go with the analogy of, of running a race. And, and we've all probably seen videos of people running hurdles, right? You've got to jump over them so every so often, and you've got to make it over the hurdle. And if you trip over one, you're probably going to lose, right? Like if you, I don't know that there's a lot of people that have ever tripped over hurdles in a competition and actually won, unless everybody tripped, right? So if everybody trips, that's just a funny vi video on the internet. But if one person trips, they're just, they just lose. So if you're running and we go, and we, we will set up as, as we think about, well, am I good enough? whether you're followers or not, like, am I good enough? How high are the hurdles we set is the question. 
So if we say, well, I'm not going to murder anybody, okay, we all know that's kind of a fairly low hurdle to jump, right? If we say, well, I'm never going to embezzle money, it's a pretty low hurdle, right, usually. I'm never going to cheat on my spouse. I'm never going to, I don't know, I'm never going to get arrested. I'm never going to, like, there, there's certain levels where we go, okay, if I don't do X, then God should let me in. I, I should be good enough. As long as I'm not as bad as the people who do that, then God should let me in. Like that, that's kind of the way that we think about it and logically the way it goes. And even some people that are saying, I'm pursuing, G- I'm pursuing God. I want to be like God. I want to chase after God. I want to look like God in my actions. What Jesus is saying is the hurdles that we set up are actually far too low. And the hurdle that gets in our way is the cornerstone where Jesus says, no, in order to pursue God and be like God, you have to be perfect. And we trip over that one because we can't be. And this is the point in the race where that hurdle comes up and it's way too high and and Jesus says, you have to be perfect. And we go, but I'm not. And Jesus says, I know, because I was perfect for you. But sometimes people take that response and they go, I don't want to jump that hurdle. I don't want to address that hurdle. I'd rather go around it or go the other way or try and figure out something different. And and here's where that leads. Because, like, just go with me again, a little bit of a deeper thought, but just go with me there for a minute. If the standard really is that if you're good enough, you get into heaven because God should look at you and say, you're good enough, how do you know when you've crossed the line into not good enough? No one knows the answer to that line. But if the answer is we're not good enough, but Jesus says in him we are good enough, then no matter what we've done, no matter what line we cross, we are still welcome into the kingdom of heaven. Does that make sense? If we don't know the line, why would we roll the dice on, I hope I'm good enough, and when I die, I'm just going to show up and go, God, was I good enough? Because we all know we're not. But then Jesus says, but in me, you are. And so some people are going to trip over Jesus in their pursuit of God. They're going to try and be good enough to get to God, but Jesus is the perfect hurdle. No one can jump, and so they're going to trip over him. But then the other set of people is some people are going to deny him altogether. I want nothing to do with him. I don't want to be a part of it. I don't trust him. I don't like what he teaches. And so those people, it says, they will be crushed because they didn't even pursue him. And when they turn and they, they come, they enter the afterlife, they figure that out, and they, they show up before God, it's going to be, did you know my son? And the answer is going to be no, and they're going to be crushed by that. Again, this is not my, like, this sounds rough. Like, this is not easy stuff, but this is, this is what Jesus says. And, and here's how I would help us understand this, right? Everyone chooses a cornerstone. What do I mean by that? I mean everyone chooses a foundation to establish their life on. Everyone. Everyone chooses something that as long as they have X, they will feel good about themselves or they will feel okay. For some of us, it's our spouse. Okay, I have this relationship. I love this relationship. As long as I've got my husband or my wife, like we're good. I can go through life and it would be awesome. And that's not even a bad thing. Some of us, it's our career. 
I worked so hard and I wanted to be this and I made sure and I did the work and I established it and I got there. And as long as I can do that job, I feel fulfilled. For some of us, it's being a parent. Like you always want to be a dad. You always want to be a mom. As long as I have my kids, I love my kids. I will always be the best mom or dad. I'll be the best grandma, grandpa, right? I will just always be that. And as long as I can always be that, I will be fulfilled and I will feel really good about my life because I've established that. Everyone chooses a cornerstone that as long as we have it, we feel comfortable and we'll be okay. The question is, what do we do with that cornerstone? And here's what we would say. This is the phrase that we use over and over again because I believe this is true. And it's the mission of our church and it's why we say this is because of all the things we just said. How this idea of a cornerstone, this idea of a foundation is something that we see all through scripture. This is what we say and if you've been here for a while, you know this. We exist to establish every person on the foundation of Jesus. It's why we're here. It's why I want you to know about Jesus, because I want you to put your foundation on that, and I want you to know that that's the thing that won't fail you, and I want you to know that that's the most important thing, because the question, the next question is this, what happens if your foundation fails? What happens if you lose the job that fulfills you so well? What happens if your spouse isn't around anymore? What happens if your kids move to the other side of the country and you can't move there too. What happens? What happens if it fails? What we make our foundation or our cornerstone or the thing that makes us happy all the time, if we've created it, it can never be completely protected. We aren't guaranteed to just always have it. And I would say that those of us who would say, maybe, Our reliance on ourselves to be good enough to get to God is not a good foundation. To say that we can reach a perfect and holy God is not a good idea without understanding who Jesus is and how we understand him as a good and holy God in our only way to get to the Father. So two questions before we go, okay? Number one would be this, and this is if you're not a follower of Jesus. How do you know your relationship with God is in the right place? Like, how do you know that? What's your measuring stick? Is it like when you get to heaven, you're just going to hope you didn't fall into the bad category and you show up and you go, well, I didn't do X, Y, and Z, so I hope I'm in that category. We've got to have a measurement somehow to say how do we know we're in the right place with our relationship with God. And if you don't know how to answer that question or you're not sure what the measuring stick is or you're not sure, please come talk to me. Come talk to Pastor Andrew me, Landon or Grace, or, or Mark, or one of the other leaders that are here, like, come talk to somebody and say, how do I know that my relationship with God is in the right place? What does that mean? And what does scripture have to say about that? Here's the other question for all of us. Is there anything other than Jesus you've placed as the cornerstone of your life? There's one really easy way, it's not easy, but there's one really good way to know the answer to this question, Okay. If you think about the most valuable thing in the world to you, whether it's your kids, it's your marriage, it's your spouse, it's your job, it's your house, it's your hobby, it's your whatever, like what is the most important thing in the world to you that you take joy in and pleasure in and fulfillment every single day? And just ask yourself this question. If that went away, would it cause me to run to God or away from God? So let's just get really real. 
if you find your fulfillment in being a parent, and one day one of your kids passes away, do you run to God? Do you run from God? If Jesus is our cornerstone and our foundation, we run to God. If Jesus is not, we run away from God. Because what has happened is our house of cards we've built has collapsed because the wrong piece was removed. We've got to ask ourselves that question. It's a hard question. And it's easy for followers of Jesus even to look at this kind of thing and go, I love Jesus. He's great. He's a part of my life. But I still want to build my foundation on something else. I still want to live over here. I still want to pursue this. I still want to find my meaning and value in another way. What do you do with that? When the foundation pieces move and they shift and something gets taken that's very valuable to you, do you run to God or do you run from God? And that'll answer the question of what is your cornerstone? And if there's something that's in life that's like, man, if God took that away, I want nothing to do with him anymore. That's your foundation. And what Jesus says is, if he's not your foundation, it's not going to turn out well. It's not going to be good. We've made a bed that's too small and a blanket that's too small, and we think it's going to last us. We think it's going to go well, and it's not. So I I just want to say, this is as Jesus is going to the cross. He's in Jerusalem getting ready to die in a few days. And he's teaching these people, and the last parable he talks about is, don't make your foundation on something other than me. And throughout scripture, it comes back to this idea. And God even says, I've established the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. The question is, what do we do with it? And I would challenge us this week, just process that question. Like, what is it? What's the thing that maybe if it was taken from me, I would run from God. I would be so angry, I would want nothing to do with him. What is that thing? Because when things get taken away from us, when Jesus is the cornerstone, we run to him. And I want all of us, so like I said, right, we establish every person on the foundation of Jesus. I want all of us to say, no matter what gets pulled, we will always run to Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, this idea of, of a cornerstone is, uh, or a foundation or whatever you want to call it, is, it's hard to tangibly place in our lives sometimes. It's very easy to look at situations and say, we're in control and, and we've got it figured out and we know what we want. And the reality is that we, we try and prepare like the Israelites did in Isaiah and anytime we create comfort for ourselves, it can always be taken from us. But you, you tell us, like, if we trust in you, if you're the foundation, you're the cornerstone, you're the one who's going to be there and you're the one who's never going to be pulled out from under us. You're the one that stands when all of that happens. And so I pray that if we've got something else in that foundational piece, that you would show us what it is and that we would be willing to evaluate that and say, this is not in the right place and I need to put Jesus in that spot and not this. I pray that that would just be abundantly clear to each of us. We thank you for all these parables we've been able to walk through and, and think through and process. And we think about the weight of as you move towards the cross, how, how heavy they were. And we pray that we wouldn't trip over you as a hurdle. 
but that we would trust in you as our righteousness. That we would find ourselves in you and we would understand that's the way to the Father. Thank you again for this truth. We pray that it would be a comfort to us in times when it's so difficult to understand what's happening. In Jesus' name, amen.